And good afternoon. Welcome, everybody, to Deering Live on this beautiful Thursday. Uh, as always, same time, same place, different guest, and welcome, Mr. Ned Lubarecki. How are you doing? Hey, welcome, Lynn. <laughs> to my place as well, as this is how we do things now, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is, for now, for now. There's, there's light, I understand, at the end uh, of there is indeed. There is the, indeed. the tunnel. Absolutely. David, as always, pleasure. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you, Ned. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm going to do a real quick introduction for you, sir. And uh, for those of you that don't know Ned, uh, he is an award-winning banjo player, having won the IBMA Banjo Player of the Year Award in 2018, amongst others. Um, and he's currently looking after banjo duties for the magnificent Becky Bueller. Um, he is also a host on XM, Sirius XM Radio, um, part of the uh, Bluegrass Junction over there, Channel 62, uh, and can be heard on Sundays and Saturdays, I hear. Um, but uh, join us for a little while as we sit back and we, we chat with one of the best players and, frankly, voices in the whole of Bluegrass, uh, Mr. Ned Lubarecki. Welcome aboard, sir. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Do you want to play us a little ditty to get started here? Here we go. Well, uh, here's one that I wrote. tremolo what's that called that is the nedscape navigator that should All right. be tuned just a little bit it's the uh, the uh, named after the imaginary software that you might use to surf the internet <laughs> 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 
not, not something I would recommend anyone you know, do. But, yeah. It's the dark web that, that you end dark. up on. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is that on? What album is that? Is that on one of your albums? Oh, I recorded that a long time ago. On it showed up on a couple of things on Rebel Records. They did one sort of compilation of a bunch of banjo things. I also recorded it once with the Rarely Heard uh, on an album that I think almost all of them are out of print. It's probably due to be re-released at some point. I'd like to re-record it someday, actually. Uh, so uh, one day, maybe it will. You know, uh, it's 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 out there somewhere. But it's one that's uh, it's an old one. But it's one it's one of my favorites to play. When there's not anybody else around, if I'm going to supposed to do a solo banjo thing, because it kind of provides its own rhythm. Yeah. And it's one of those tunes that uh, it's one of my favorites of, of any of them that I've come up with. And I think like anybody, if you if you write tunes or if you write songs or if you write music, uh, you you probably have favorites and then you have ones that you don't think as much about and and there are a few of mine that you know that i've let go of but that's always been one of my favorites and of the ones that that i tend to favor i notice that they are the ones that almost wrote themselves you know they just came out whole and and that one when i i remember when i wrote it i was still living back in uh, maryland i'm originally from maryland and i was sitting at my kitchen table uh with the banjo out i don't remember why if i if, if, you know i'm apt to have a banjo with me almost anywhere and uh and i was just fooling around with that with that sort of drone on the fourth string and then moving different chords around and listen to the, how it sounded and within a few minutes i started to go just from there just flowed out it just came out all in one piece that's always great when when that just kind of happens and just yeah. you, you know you just sit down so many times you sit down and kind of you know you noodle around on, on your instrument and it just it's just it just stays you come up with little ideas but they just kind of evaporate and then when they kind of stick and it all comes together it's kind of yeah. it's a magical thing there's no real there's no real real strategy behind it. It just kind of yeah. happens. Right? You're just channeling them. You know, it's like the tune needs to get out and it just comes out on its own. And, and, you know, just don't want to get in its way. You know, I do, mm -hmm. remember, uh, you know, and, and thinking about that and this, this is sort of circling back, but uh, well, I, I, in, in, a, in a different kind of way, uh, I was thinking about a tune that John Hartford wrote one time and I and, and I got to meet John a few different times uh, through the years, and this was maybe the first time that I ever got to meet him and be around him for any uh, length of time. Uh, and this was back in the 1980s at a bluegrass festival I was playing down in Florida. And he had played, I think the song that I'm remembering was, it was the, the Delta Queen Waltz. It was a really pretty waltz tune that he, he performed. And I asked him if he had written that tune on the banjo or the fiddle or how he wrote it. And he told me that he wrote it on paper. And I kind of looked at him, you know, and I said, really, you didn't have an instrument? And he said, well, he said, when the melody started coming to me, uh, he said that I really, he said it was a pure melody and I didn't want to influence it on a particular instrument. And then I love this because, you know, John was so quotable. He said, because our fingers tend to follow familiar paths, you know, so if he had written it on the fiddle, he would have automatically applied 
fiddle licks to it, and he would have made it very fiddly. And if he had written it on the banjo, well, he would have written it following something that he was used to doing on the banjo. But since he had that melody in his head, he just wanted to put the melody down in kind of a pure form, just on paper, and then apply an instrument to it, you know, so that he wouldn't he wouldn't spoil the melody and make it uh, lean one way or the other, which I thought was very clever, you know, very wise thing from a very wise guy. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you kind of, when you get a good idea, when you, like, um, how do you kind of capture it so you, you do remember it the next day, um, you know, so it doesn't just... Yeah. If, the- if something comes to me and I sort of like it, I will, I'll, anymore, I'll grab my phone. You know, used to be I would mm-hmm. grab a recorder and try to record it that way. Um, I've never been good at sort of jotting things down. You know, I, I, I don't usually write it down like in, on paper or in tablature or anything like that. So I'll try to, if something starts coming to me, most of the time when that happens, I'm lucky enough that I have an instrument in my hands that I can... I can sort of flesh it out right there. Uh, there's a few things that I've found on my phone. You know, you always think you've come up with some brilliant idea. You know, you, you think, oh, this is going to be great. And then you go back through your phone and you hit the button and you listen. And you're like, oh, that's just Earl's Breakdown again. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I've written Earl's Breakdown probably 200 times. <laughs> I just listen back to it and I'm like, well, that's pretty good because it's Earl's Breakdown, you know. <laughs> Earl's already written all the good ones, you know, for the rest of us. Try, we're just scraping at it, you know. <laughs> what about, do you get frustrated? I know myself, I, I sometimes do when I, because I'll record on my phone the voice recorder and then I have to transcribe myself. And sometimes I have trouble transcribing myself. And <laughs> You know, no, because most of the time, if something comes to me, I'll... I, I, you know, if I, when I get back to it, it'll be, it'll be soon enough that I'll, I, you know, I, I won't have forgotten it too much. I just really need the reminder. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I just need to, those first four notes to get the ball rolling and then somehow it will come back. And then even if it doesn't, I've had the, this happen before where I, I, I jotted something down and then I started, started playing with it and, you know, come back to it an hour later and then just pick up the banjo and start playing it and go like, yeah, 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 this is that thing I worked on. And then find out that it was wrong, that I wasn't doing what was, you know, that I I changed it. It already morphed into something else, but this turned out to be better. So so it's like, wow, there you go. Let's, let's run with that. Yeah. Right. Right. So how, how, when did you start playing the banjo? How old were you? I was about 13, I think it was about 1978. Um, and the way it happened, my, uh, my, my mother worked for a, a company that did like industrial air conditioning work. She was a bookkeeper and, uh, but her boss, the guy that owned the, the company, and this was in Maryland, this is just like South of Baltimore or somewhere around the Chesapeake Bay. And, and her boss, it turns out must've been a bluegrass fan because every once in a while he would have some kind of a corporate party or, you know, some sort of event and he would hire a bluegrass band to play. I guess he, I guess he must've liked it. And so we went to this, uh, to this company, I don't know, it was a company party. It was at this restaurant that he also owned. And, uh, there was a bluegrass band playing. And up until that point about all the banjo or bluegrass that I had been exposed to was just, you know, the dueling banjos was, was on the radio and, uh, and, uh, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies, I remember mm-hmm. the that. 
But watching this band play, I was fascinated by the banjo player. I just I just kept watching uh, watching him play, and there was something about the fact that the banjo was just going all the time. Like even when everybody else, the guitar player was strumming, and the fiddle player would play something, and then he'd kind of step back, and the mandolin player, you know, to my eyes, was was just strumming. But the banjo was just always doing something. He just kept this thing going. And something about the sound of it, you know, just hearing that, hearing that sound uh, going. And so at the time, you know, again, I must have been 12 maybe when this, when I saw this band and maybe just about 13. And mom, uh, I, I told my mom, I said, you know, I'd like to learn how to play that. And she said, really, the banjo? And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I said, yeah. And so she went up during the break and uh, it, and I, I, you know, met the banjo player. I even remember the name of the band. The band was a Maryland-based band. They were called Coup de Grasse. And uh, I bought a record of theirs. I have their record somewhere. But uh, mom asked the banjo player, she said, uh, she said, so my son wants to learn how to play one of those things. How much does it cost? How much does one cost? And and I only know this because I remember seeing the picture on the album cover. The guy was playing, and again, this would have been about 1978. The guy was playing a Stelling banjo, and he said, well, this is kind of a good one, and it cost about $900. And Mom was like, what? $900? It's a round thing with a stick. How can it be so much? But then the guy said, no, 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 but you can get one for a lot cheaper. You can get like a... Uh, you know, a hundred dollar, a two hundred dollar one. So, so that's what we did. We went out to the music store and bought some. You know, it was just one of those Asian import. Had a big sticker with an eagle on the back of it. Uh, you know, and it was about a hundred bucks and a couple of picks and a book. And I still have that book somewhere. It was really useless. It, it really didn't have anything useful in it. And I found eventually a music store uh, close to where I lived that opened up there where a guy was giving banjo lessons, and he. Uh, he he set me up with some picks and started showing me the the ropes and and the other the other thing that I, I I think where this all once again being a small world of the bluegrass world the guy that I originally took uh, banjo lessons was a guy named Bob Tice well his son Jordan Tice is now you know uh, a member of the band Hawktail and an amazing guitar player and lives just a couple of blocks from me here in Nashville uh, and it was his dad. That was my first banjo teacher back in Annapolis, Maryland. Wow. Wow. And, and what was, when you're learning, do you remember some of the, uh, you know, you're a teacher and, and, and you see a lot of the struggles, but what were one of the struggles that you had when you're trying to, you know, and how'd you overcome those struggles? Oh man, the biggest struggle was, and, and I remember this, I remember this really, uh, really well because it was the, the, the first place I the first book I had that I learned out of was that Pete Wernick bluegrass banjo book. And I still have a copy of it around here somewhere too. Um, and, and it was a great book to get started with. You know, there are a lot of books out there. I've written a couple of books and, and most beginner banjo books kind of do the same thing. They teach you how to play a few roles and they, and they get you going on that. And then they play, these roles in a particular order along with every once in a while a melody note and you somehow it comes out sounding like the tune. Well, the problem I had was I remember one of the first songs in there that I learned how to play was Coming Around the Mountain. And I remember really well trying to how the first line of Coming Around the Mountain went. And, and for me playing it, it went...
couldn't hear coming around the mountain in that to save my life because I was playing at one note at a time, being very careful to get, you know, note after note. It wasn't until later that, you know, I weeks and weeks into it that I figured out it was... It, it, it took a while, and that that was frustrating. The thing that I eventually, years later, because I started teaching, I started teaching after I'd only been playing for a few years. Teacher moved on, went to a different job, and and they needed somebody to teach. And the the store offered the job to me, even though I'd only been playing about two years. They said you were his best student. We need somebody. The gig is yours. So I did it. But it wasn't until later that I thought. That wouldn't it have been better if somebody had just showed me how to play a melody on a song? If I, they'd show me how to go. You know, and just learn how to play the melody. Pick it out and make it come out sounding like the tune. Then start to embellish it with rolls. And I changed my teaching style after I kind of figured that out and started teaching that uh, along with sort of the standard, here's how you play a couple of roles, here's how you play a C chord, but but here's how you can start with just the melody of a song. And uh, I, I, I was a lot more successful as a teacher by doing that because it just gives somebody something that is recognizable right off, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, as a as a teacher too, I, you know, I, we sometimes we we get bogged down into too much, you know, not giving them something that they can take home and play for somebody. Where it's just it becomes a little too mathematical, and right. giving, them, giving them a melody to play, you know, I think makes it a little more enjoyable. And then and then the other thing that I that I've learned is that I would start with a song, something really simple like Yankee Doodle, and I would have them play Yankee Doodle. And then I would tell them, play it just like that. Play it like you would sing it. And eventually a student would ask me, they would say, uh, Okay, but you know, will you write it down for me? Just write it down. You know, if you write it down, it'll be faster. So I would write it down in tab. I would, you know, zero zero two four zero four two, and I'd do it that way. And then they would come back the next week and they'd say, "Okay, I learned it." And I'd say, "Well, great, play it." And then we go. There, I got it. And I would just shake my head and say, okay, you would never sing it to me that way. You would never sing. Yankee Doodle went to town on riding on the pony. You know, you, you wouldn't do that. So I, I, I would stress again that you got to play it. You got to really make it sound like music. Even if it's just, even if it's just Yankee Doodle, even if it's just those couple of notes, you know, just make it sound like you're singing it. Make it sound like your banjo is, is singing. Make it come out like that. And then if once you can do that, the rest of it's going to come a lot smoother. It's good advice. Very good advice. Um, what was your first professional playing gig? What was uh, you? You played with a lot of different players, but um, what was your first like real professional gig? 
My first real, well, uh, you know, there were a couple of things. Uh, the first band I ever put together came from, I worked, there was a music store in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, back when I was getting started called Baltimore Bluegrass. And uh, Mike Munford uh, worked there also. And wow. I worked there together for about five years. I was there for about five years. Mike was there for a lot longer. Um, but I, they had jam sessions on Friday nights. And when I was just getting started playing, I would go up there on Friday nights and, and uh, sit in the jams. And once again, this was one of the things where my mom's boss, they had they had some kind of a thing. It was an auction or something they were having. And they wanted to hire a bluegrass band. And they hired a band. And then they offered to me, they said, hey, if Ned can get some of his friends together, they can come out and play too. And we'll give them 200 bucks. 200 bucks, man, you know, 16 years old, 200 bucks. So uh, I found a couple of uh, the guys from that jam session and we put together, we worked up a set of songs and we played and we called ourselves Cornerstone. I don't know why. (laughs) That was my first paying gig was to to do that. But from there, uh, I played in in a local band around Baltimore called the Seder Hill Band, which is still together. We started the Seder Hill Band in 1984 three i think and the band is still going oh i mean it's a bunch of different people but but the core of the band is still there um and from there my first real professional on the road band was a band called paul and that was back in the late 80s early 90s uh we traveled around played a lot of festivals throughout the uh, well all around the country we played uh, around the u.s and a couple of canadian uh, things and uh yeah, that was my that was my first big one. That was the first band I ever went to the uh, IBMA uh, trade show in Owensboro with. We were I I went I think I might have been at the first one of those in the in the late nineteen eighties. Well, and then, and then what do you think for you know you've been successful as a uh, you know playing as a sideman with a lot of different acts and. For up and coming banjo players, what do you think is a good some good advice for them if to 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 be able to, to get hired and then to, to, uh, what makes you you know you know what do you think about is it about that you're playing makes people hire you and maybe maybe it's also playing in other professional aspects too. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into it, and the advice that I would give anybody. Um, First of all, one thing one thing for me personally is I'm I enjoy a lot of different styles of music. So if you know I I love straight ahead bluegrass. Uh, I love Flat and Scruggs. I love Bill Monroe. I love that style of bluegrass. I also loved newgrass revival. I love the infamous String Dusters. You know I love the Kruger Brothers. I love uh, you know so many things that are you know whether they're whether whether people consider them to be traditional bluegrass or not. Oh, uh, I just like the music. And so, but I also feel like I have some respect for all of it. You know, so if somebody were to hire me to play in a very straight ahead bluegrass band, well, I would respect that and I would play that style and I would love it. I would, it would be a lot of fun to play a whole night of Jimmy Martin and Flat and Scruggs songs, you know, and just really bear down and play that style. But then uh, if somebody were doing something else, I, I, like uh, as a player myself, because I'm interested in all those different styles, I've learned a little bit about all of them. And so I think versatility has been something that that has been really uh, helpful to me. I know that that helped me uh, when I when when I started with Becky's band, as a matter of fact, because when she decided to start her own band, 
the first solo album she put out, well, it wasn't her first solo album, but it was the first one she did when she decided to uh, go out on her own as an artist. She used a bunch of different players on that, including me. I played banjo on, on one song. But uh, Scott Vestal played on it with the Sam Bush Band. They were on a few of the songs. Ron Block played on it. Um, there was some other banjo on there as well. But So the songs ranged from something really kind of bluegrassy with that Ron Block sort of, you know, driving, you know, thing to one that uh, had Scott Vestal doing some Scott Vestal-y kind of pyrotechnics in it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that playing with Becky, she needed to have a banjo player that could do both. And at the time, I was also playing with Chris Jones and the Night Drivers when the first year that I filled in with Becky, she was just using me to fill in. Uh, and she called me simply because she knew that I could do both of those things. Uh, and then for that whole first year, she kept saying, well, I realize that you're playing in Chris's band and I've only got you on loan. So if you can help me find a banjo player to, you know, to replace you, you know, keep your ears open. And I kept thinking about that and trying to think of players that I knew that could do it. And I wasn't coming up with a lot. I mean, there definitely are some, but, you know, most of them were already working in different bands. Uh, and it, uh, you know, it kind of gave me a, my own little pat on the back just to think, well, you know, that's kind of cool. I might be, I'm one of the people who can, who, can, who can fit both of these bills. But then at the same time, I also kept thinking, you know, who do I want to have this gig? And I kept thinking, well, I don't want anybody to have this gig. I think I like this gig. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I kind of had to make a decision. <laughs> but that's that's one thing, versatility. Uh, you want to be not only uh, have the respect for the kind of music that you're supposed to be playing, but you want to be versatile enough to, to do uh, a few different kinds of things. You want to uh, be able – the other one is – and this is something that goes for anybody that's uh, you know trying to – to make a career kind of like I have where some of it is recording, some of it is teaching, whatever uh, other things is be able to learn stuff fast. You know, you got to be a quick study. you got to be able to, uh, you know, in a recording session, they put a chart in front of you. You got to be able to do more than just play the chords that are on the chart. You've got to be able to play the chords that are on the chart and do something interesting with them and then be ready to change on a dime when the producer says, you know, I really think we want to go a different direction. Instead of doing this, I want you to do something more like that. Be ready to do that, you know, be, be ready. Uh, and be ready by just keep playing all the time and, and try, to, try to immerse yourself in it, try to be ready to, to, to handle any of those kind of circumstances. And then, you know, be fun to be along with, you know, just try not to be... <laughs> trying to take the blame. <laughs> yeah, that can go far away in, in, in lots of careers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, my, I, when, when my wife and I were first together and we would go to uh, the Station Inn and, and you know, watch bands and sometimes, you know, we would go see some of our favorite bands there and then we would also see bands of throw-together bands of, of people, locals, or anything like that, and uh, or even at the jam sessions they used to do there, and my wife would say, well, what about this person? You know, are they good enough to be in a band, or what about that? Is he good enough to be in a band? And, and I would say, at some point, anybody's good enough to be in a band. It's whether you can be in a van with them for 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> night after night, you know, for a month at a time, for a week at a time, or a month at a time, or whatever. Right, you know, if you can, if you can be out on the road for, for a week at a time, then you're good enough to be in a band, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the versatility is. I definitely listening to your album. Uh, 
um, take five. There's oh. definitely some versatility in there. You know, you play, you're playing straight ahead bluegrass um, style tunes, and then you're playing some jazz standards too. Um, so it definitely comes across there. Do you want to play anything that shows some of your versatility right now? Uh, let's see. Um... track on take five i was listening to night driver oh um, yeah that one thing that stood out in there it's a it's a it's a for people it's a it's pretty straight ahead bluegrass instrumental style tune i would say and but um but with some modern uh single string playing in there so you get it, you know you're playing a mixture of of uh of, of scruggs rolls and some string single string licks is that correct would you say? Yeah, let's see. I'm trying to remember how the tune goes. I haven't played it in a while. Uh, let's see. It's... Uh, uh, something along the lines of I think that was it Done. yeah I can't remember it anymore it had a lot of that kind of nonsense in it I remember that um yeah, yeah. I, boy, I hadn't thought about that tune in a while. We haven't played it. Uh, we, we, I, that's one of those ones that we recorded, 
and then played it a couple of times. Well, as a matter of fact, that was right during the transition. You know, since it is called Night Driver, it was Chris Jones and the Night Drivers playing uh-huh. with me. And then right after we recorded it is about the time that I left that band and started playing with Becky. And it felt a little weird to play it. It felt felt almost like cheating. You know, to play, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. play a song called Night Driver with the, with, with the Becky Buller band. But I think we did, but... Um, yeah, I forgot about that. One thing I liked in that is that is those you have the, the the rolls going, and then you have the the little licks, the little like the single string lick, you know, when you're up the neck. But it's very smooth. It's very consistent. That you don't lose that drive. Um, I know when I switch between the styles, sometimes I, there's a little bit of a change when I have a attack or something. When I, you know, it just oh, it's you, hard. You, I know. I, How'd you get there and, and how, you know, what are some suggestions on practicing that? Well, I don't, I, I, I don't know that I've fully gotten there and, and I'll, and I'll say this about it because I remember, uh, I remember I had a, a student one time, a very advanced student who wanted to learn something. Uh, it was something from the Nolan Piccioni plays, Kenny Baker plays Bill Monroe record, which, uh, is a phenomenal, a phenomenal piece of work that, that Noam did. Um, and of course, you, what you, I know what you're saying is, it's like when you're playing scrub style, you have a very rolly kind of sound, and you and you know it's a it's a consistent sound within within the that you know within that style. Then when you start to play melodic style, uh, the tone can change a little bit. Uh, So the melodic style tends to be really smooth sounding and, you know, it's got this sort of flowing motion to it. Scrub style can be a little more exaggerated. You know, it can have some, some stops and starts and it can have some, uh, some, uh, some maybe more dynamic elements to it, you know, because the pull-offs can be really sort of violent sounding where melodic style tends to be a, a little different. And then when you play single string style, <clears throat> of course, when you're comparing it to melodic style, when you're playing melodic style, you play one note and then the next note, and they both ring together. When you play single string style, you just play the second note, your first note goes away. So it's a lot choppier sounding. To me, when I listen to Noam play something like he did on that Kenny Baker plays Bill Monroe record, uh, or Noam plays Kenny plays Bill, he. Uh, I can't tell the difference between his single string playing and his melodic style playing because he pays attention to every note in melodic style to just give it its its you know microsecond and then he mutes them slightly so that he can move into the next position so that they all sound the same and that that is a level of dedication to the banjo that is above my pay grade it's just it's <laughs> Uh, that and I try I try to tell people that so that you can you can fully appreciate I I remember when I was first learning how to play and I and I you know to me I knew nothing and so my teacher and Earl Scruggs and Tony Trishka all knew everything you know they were so far ahead of me that I couldn't tell the difference between them then later as I started to get a little bit better I could start to appreciate oh man you know that thing that so and so was doing is really advanced you know and then I could start to see you know so you start to see how far ahead the guy in first place is and so when when I'm when I try to express this to people I try to tell them you know the level of dedication that a player like Noam or uh, Bela or uh, or uh, Ryan Cavanaugh you know uh, that that uh, that they've 
that they've worked, the level of dedication that they've worked to to be able to do what they do is really, really something. And I'm not doing this to sell myself short. I know that I've put a lot of work into it also, but 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 that's there's there is a, a different level there. So on the other side of that, sometimes when it comes to single string style, and this is one of the things that I've always admired about uh, about Tony Trishka's playing. Uh, Tony's playing to me, and Tony is one of my favorite musicians ever in the world, and one of my favorite people in the world. I mean, I just I love Tony to death, and uh, and he. His playing it feels very emotional to me. You know, he's it, it's it. it I, I don't mean to say that it's less refined, but sometimes it just it just comes right at you. You know, it just hits you like a, a brick. And sometimes you know it's it's very soft and flowing and beautiful. But sometimes sometimes he'll play angry banjo music. And what I notice is sometimes he uses single string style. As a, he uses the full advantage of it, the sort of choppiness of it, and the sort of staccato ness of it, in order to make a point. You know, in order to make a musical point, he uses that advantage to it. And so, to me, when I play single string style, sometimes I try to make it as as clean and as fluid as I can. But sometimes I make it, you know. <laughs> slap let it let it get a little nasty because you can get that you know and and that can be part of the sound also but then you know if you're trying to make it sound really clean and 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 that it just does take a lot of work <laughs> yeah yeah that's it's good advice though it's good and it's, and it's good to let people know you know it, you know the the level of like what you said the you know the gnomes and the Baylas and the ryans like that 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 dedication to get to where they're at is yeah and it's <laughs> and it and and you know you when you when you look at that or when you listen to players that 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 have put that kind of work into it uh, I, you know i mean I, besides the fact that i enjoy listening to the music that they make uh, i do you, i do want people to have an appreciation for that but i think it's also important for people to know that that music is more than that, you know, that mm -hmm. dedicating your life to making your single string style sound as clean as possible is a worthy goal. But when it comes to technique and we think about musicians that have, you know, flawless technique and, and can do these incredible things, I also go back to think about a guitar player like, you know, I compare, say, Steve Vine to Stevie Ray Vaughan. You know, Steve mm -hmm. I can play technical things. I just saw a video of him playing a, a, an entire uh, piece just with his left hand. You know, that was mind-blowing. You know, uh, he can do these kinds of things. Stevie Ray Vaughan, he could never do the things that, that Steve Vai can do, but Stevie Ray Vaughan could make me cry. You know, mm -hmm. I him play a solo on the guitar, and it would make me tear up just from the, just from the, the emotion that he put into what he played. And... You know, I, yeah. no, there's no amount of technique in the world will teach you how to do that. That's just that's just emotion. That's just playing what you feel. You know, and that's uh, yeah. that's pretty amazing too. You know, and so it's an, another level of music that yeah. so many so many levels of music. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the you know the great things about it. But but as as in the bluegrass world and the jazz world, we definitely can get hung up on technique a little bit too much, or even the rock world when you know. Um, you know, as guitar rock players, you know, can definitely we can get stuck there and then never kind of found find our own voice. And, yeah. and 
<laughs> uh, um, you, you know, you're also playing a number of kind of when you're doing the single string licks or that or that tune, you kind of guitar style licks. Are you a guitar player too? A little bit. Uh, I I played banjo first, so I when I play guitar, I tend to play it like a banjo player. Um, and any of the sort of rock and roll licks that I've learned how to play on on guitar, I. <laughs> Let's see. I guess maybe it's time to get this one out. <laughs> I was influenced by a guy who painted his guitar like this. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is this is my uh, this is my my deer in crossfire. I can't remember when I got this one. I got this one a long time ago. Um, I could probably tell you the serial number on it, and you could look it up for me. It's and did you was that a custom stain the no, custom finish? okay so here's here's what i did i modified this one quite a bit um well not maybe not too too much but i did paint it i 51 would it i painted it like uh like van halen you know for anybody yeah. oh you know, eddie van halen famously sort of painted his guitars this way and and then it had a lot of stuff, uh, you know, that, that ended up painting. And the way Van Halen first did it, his his main guitar, the one that everybody called the Frankenstrat, because it was a Stratocaster style guitar that he uh, that he you know built himself out of just parts that he bought in local you know parts shops and things. But he the the original body of it was black, and then he wrapped tape around it, painted it white. And pulled the tape off, and then it was it was white with black stripes. And so on the very first Van Halen record, you can see a picture of him, you know, holding that guitar, and it's just it, it looks like it's a white guitar with black stripes, and that's how he did it. Well, later he painted he put tape around it in another random pattern and painted it red, uh, and then came up with something that looked like this. And that's what I did to this one. This was a black uh, crossfire, and I I wrapped it up with the painter's tape and painted it white and then pulled the tape off and it was black and white and then I painted I taped it up again in a random way and painted it red and then <laughs> that's great clear coat on it so that I could make it look Van Haleny. I did a couple other things to it that are just a little bit uh, non-standard and I hope uh, I hope uh, Greg Deering doesn't uh, doesn't shoot me for this but um, what I noticed was I, I wasn't getting the same volume level out of the bridge pickup as I was the, the neck pickup. So I wanted to bring the neck pickup closer. So I actually just took a razor knife and cut a hole in the head. Didn't break. It was great. Um, I took a pickup mounting uh, ring and, and put it on there. It kind of glued it on. And I brought this pickup out to the front so that it was closer to the strings. And these are the pickups that it came with. They were EMG humbucking pickups. But I also mounted some uh, screws and, and uh, uh, for the one in the back so that I could adjust it. Uh, you can access the pickups through these little uh, plates on the back here. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing I did to it, because... The way the, the crossfire usually works is the banjo head is still an acoustic banjo. It's just like a little hoop in here, and the, the, the difference between the, the top of the head and the, and the chamber is only a quarter of an inch or something like that. I put a uh, neoprene practice pad in there, so this is like completely dead uh, everywhere except right under the bridge where the pickup is. And the reason I did that was I was playing in this band that was... Uh, that was a uh, 
I don't know. They were they were a country rock pseudo. They were called the Apocalyptic Cowboys. And one of the guitarists in the band was a metalhead, and he played through a Marshall stack. And I couldn't get an acoustic banjo loud enough, and I could barely get this loud enough. Um, so I kind of did all that to it, and then I made it where I could play this at any volume I wanted. I could get you know rock star volume out of this thing. So let me see. I have a little amplifier here that maybe it'll. Uh, Remember how to do this. Uh, turn that down. Turn this up. There we go. coming next that's that's the next thing you can do um but you of course if i put it on a less severe uh let's see put it on this what's that setting i'm just using a little battery powered rolling damp here so it's not there's not a lot of uh not a lot of control i have the sound but there is just the neck pickup the blend of the two, and then that was just the bridge pickup, so that I could get them sounding a lot more. playing in a really loud situation um, seems to work really well it's uh, the the thing is if you try to amplify an acoustic banjo and get it into the mix of a really loud stage volume you know if there's drums and a lot of electric instruments that are you know if there's a if there's an electric guitar and an electric bass guitar on there those instruments tend to sustain a lot and the banjo uh, an acoustic banjo and the acoustic banjo sound doesn't and it'll it'll cut. You'll be able to hear the notes, but they'll kind of pop and they'll go away and they'll get swallowed up in the mix a lot. So, so even though this sounds very sustainy for a banjo, it doesn't really sound like an acoustic banjo. Once you put it into the mix with a really loud electric mix, then it really does cut through, sounding like a banjo. So it's one of the one of the arguments that I know people have made when they hear one of these or another kind of solid body. Uh, banjo is they'll say, well, it doesn't really sound like a banjo. And then I'll say, well, you know, a Telecaster doesn't sound like a D28 either. <laughs> electric guitar and there's an acoustic guitar and they both have a place in the world. And so, yeah, there's an acoustic banjo and there's an electric banjo. And sometimes if you're, if you're playing in a situation where, where it's needed, where you do want to have a banjo sound and you just can't make an acoustic banjo uh, do it. One of these will definitely do it. But then, you know, as we've seen with uh, you know players like Bela and uh, and and other folks who have uh, who've done so many other things with uh, with these, there's there's becoming a body of work for electric banjo. You know, it is it's 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 an instrument that is 
that's taking on its own form. You know, it's not just made to be a banjo that you can be louder with. People are using it to full advantage to play, you know, to create music on, which is the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had this conversation with, with Ryan Kavanaugh because he's playing electric banjo. He's like, I, what, you know, and, he, and he's playing with a lot of effects and single string, not a lot of, of the fifth string. And it's like, why? And he plays guitar. Why are you playing guitar versus playing banjo? And he's just like, well, I, you know, there's, I like, I like the challenge, I guess, but, but, um, but there is a point to it. And there's something different about it. Cause when you do hit that fifth string or you play differently a little bit too, as then if you picked up a guitar, I think, would you agree with that? I mean, there, there are, there are definitely, uh, you know, there, there comes a point where if you're playing all single string and, and that is something that I think about sometimes with banjo, uh, is I think about, you know, trying to keep it banjo-y. And, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm not on a level of, of the music that Ryan is playing. Again, he's, uh, he's taking the banjo to, to, to all different places. But uh, <clears throat> there is definitely... Um, I, I think about it, one of the places it really becomes obvious to me, and I'm going to grab a regular banjo again to, to kind of do this. Uh, I'll grab a different Daring banjo. I'll grab the one I probably play around the house the most. Love this little thing. Um, is you can start to play things that sound very guitarish. You can start to play things that sound very whatever-ish. But I always like it when it comes back to banjo. And it is, as an example, you can play certain tunes that you know, like if you're playing melodic style fiddle tunes, you can play things that are that are very note for note exactly what the fiddle would play. But at some point, it sounds better if you bring back another good old banjo pull off. You know, like it, instead of. get a lot of the fiddle tuny kind of thing going on, but then come back and play a pull-off, you know, and stick one of those in there, and that brings it back to banjo, you know, use your fifth string, get a forward roll going every once in a while, and that's what people associate with banjo, you know, that's what, that's what makes it sound like, well, to me, like bluegrass banjo playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you use, do you ever use, a, um, somebody's asking, what about an acoustic banjo with a pickup? Do you ever use a pickup on your banjo when you're playing? Do you yeah, I, I do that uh, quite a bit when uh, when me and Stephen Mojan play. Uh, we, uh, I use, a, I use, usually I use a Fishman pickup. I've been experimenting lately with the uh, Tone Dexter, that, that stop box that you can uh, sample your own sounds. Um, mm -hmm. The instructions that come with the Tone Dexter tell you you can't use it with a Fishman pickup, but you can. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there are some issues you have to kind of dial back some some frequencies for feedback. But I've got, uh, yeah, there's a, I'll, I, as long as I'm doing it, I, I haven't brought this one out yet. I've got my Fishman pickup wired into, into this banjo right here. What is that banjo before you get going? That's... Hartford and there you, go. you know the funny thing is when I got this banjo I bought this banjo at IBMA 
I think it was maybe the last year that the IBMA convention was here in Nashville. Um, I remember I just kept hanging out at the Deering booth and I was, I was playing, uh, you know, all the bands was there and I kept playing this one. I just, I really uh, liked the sound of it and it was not strung up in low tuning like it is now. It was strung up with regular light gauge strings. It was up to standard pitch. And that's how I, that's what I did with it for the first several years that I had this banjo. I just kept it as a bluegrass banjo. As a matter of fact, um, John Weisberger did an album called uh, I've Been Mostly Awake. It was a, a benefit album for the IBMA. And I played uh, I played my Ten Brooks on about half of it, and I played this banjo on about half of it in standard tuning. And, uh, man, it, it was a great-sounding bluegrass banjo. In the past couple of years, uh, I've been doing a lot of recording where people have asked for the low-tune banjo sound. And so I tried just tuning down one of the other ones, and I did a few other things. And finally, one day, I thought, well, I, you know, it seems cliche. I'll just go ahead and put the low strings on the Hartford banjo. I did, and it sounded great, you know. So now this one is my low-tune banjo. Uh, and I've been using it a lot. It's actually been on... Uh, on Becky Buller album. It's on. Um, it's on three or four tunes. It's on Stephen Mojan's new album. I used it on a couple of tunes on that. And I'm using basically the Julia Bell strings. You know, that Steam-powered aeroplane, right? And yeah. And you, like, again, you're using the Julia Bell strings on that. You said, eh? yeah. I can't remember what the what the set what the gauges are, but they're they're really heavy. You know, it's like a twenty for a third string and a twenty-four for a fourth, something like that. You know, they're uh, they're they're you know, if you just try to tune regular strings down that low, they just they just get all floppy. <laughs> they're floppy, yeah. So, uh, so I finally just made the decision since I was I was getting called to play low banjo enough times that I would just throw low strings on this one and uh, and and it's I I almost feel like I now need to get another Hartford banjo so that I can have one in, in <laughs> regular tuning because I I sort of miss playing this one in in regular tuning. There's something about it about the wood tone ring that 
that has sort of a, and I hope this makes sense, it has kind of a boingy sound. You know, it's like a regular uh, metal tone ring banjo has this ringy, you know, pop to it. But this one has this sort of the strings almost go boing. And it's uh, it, it, it kind of makes me think a little bit about what a what a calfskin head sounds like. You know, they kind mm-hmm. of a little bit when they when they play the, the note kind of springs out instead of instead of being really sharp sounding. And so even with like light strings playing bluegrass style on this. That was the that was sort of the tone that I that I got out of it, and besides the fact that it's also you know weightless compared to <laughs> right 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 definitely <laughs> you know when you start to get in your mid fifties it's like oh hey this light banjo feels pretty good <laughs> right that that, that that three pounds you save you know definitely oh, makes a difference <laughs> three pounds makes a difference for sure. And the first banjo you played, somebody was asking, what there was a what was that? That was your Saratoga Star, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a Saratoga Star, um, and it's a uh, once again one. I can't remember what year I got this banjo, but I, but it's another one that I got at IBMA, and it was whatever year that Tony Trishka won Banjo Player of the Year and got Album of the Year for his uh, double, double bluegrass. Banjo Spectacular. Yeah, because I was playing those tours with Tony back then, and uh, he was playing his Saratoga Star back in those days, and that's what, uh, that's of course what made me want one, you know, because uh, I just I wanted to be like Tony. I, everybody, <laughs> everybody would be more like Tony. What a world. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, this one, uh, this one is a little different than Tony's. This one is a uh, is the standard 06 tone ring. Doesn't have the Kruger tone ring. And of all things, it was Jens Kruger who talked me into this combination because he had told me at least at that time that he had taken the Kruger ring out of his banjo and was going was playing an 06. And he uh, he suggested that the 06 was a little heavier than the Kruger uh, tone ring and and had a little more sustain. Um, he, you know, Jens kind of told me, he was like, I think that would suit your playing style better. And I thought, well, you know, if Jens says it, you know, <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good advice. <laughs> and, and what strings do you have on there? Somebody was asking that as well. Um, yeah. Dario, uh, I think they're EJ60S, the, the Dario uh, light gauge with a stainless steel fourth string. Yep, and uh, about the only thing I've done to this banjo, uh, I think I changed the head on it a few years ago because this head's pretty pretty new and uh, and I did uh, I did put a smile bridge on it. I had uh, I ordered one of those, so uh, uh, that that really made a difference. That I, I really thought I liked that bridge a lot. Yeah. How do you think it, the tone changed with the smile bridge? Yeah, yeah. It 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 seemed a little clearer on this banjo. It had been. I I guess the bridge that was on it was one of those uh, Greg signature bridges. It didn't have didn't have any uh, writing on it other than his sort of you know G and ballpoint pen. Um, and that was a great sound of bridge too. But I uh, I you know when this one came out, uh, I think it was Greg Cahill who actually told me that he first tried one of these and he really liked it. So I uh, I called up. Uh, I called up and ordered one and put it on there. Yeah, that's been on there ever since. Yeah. Very good. 
Well, Jamie, um, do you have any questions? I have countless questions, none of which are related to this live stream, so I'm going to rely on uh, <laughs> other people's questions today. Give me a second. Hey, just before we do that, um, I loved your uh, listening to you talk about uh, you know Steve Vai being able to do so much more than Stevie Ray Vaughan, but Stevie Ray Vaughan could make you cry. Like it's so true. I remember there's a there's a quote from um, Carol Kay, who's a very famous bass player, and uh, yeah, yeah. she said something to the effect of, uh, "You're supposed to move people, not bore them with technical prowess." And that just it's ingrained in my brain for for years. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Also, my excuse to not you know spend ten hours a day trying to tap or anything like that. <laughs> but she's right. You know, it's the same same idea. So all right, let me put up a few of these questions here. Um, how did you get into radio announcing? We haven't touched on that, but what was your kind of kind of foray into into that? You know, ever since I was a kid, I I listened to radio announcers and always thought it was cool, and I would try to sound like them. I would hear a TV commercial, and the voiceover announcer would say, "Part of this complete breakfast with eight essential vitamins and minerals," and then I would just say, "Part of this complete breakfast with eight essential vitamins and minerals," and sound <laughs> like that. Um, I used to sit and just read, you know, cold, cold copy. I would just pick something up and, and read it. I'm trying to think if I, I'm trying to look if there's anything around here I could, I could read at you. But, but I, I, I literally would pick up like the cereal box from the, from the breakfast table and, and just start reading the ingredients or reading whatever the words were on it, uh, just trying to sound like an announcer. And the first time I actually worked for a radio station, I was living in Frederick, Maryland, and WFMD Radio was, their broadcast studios were a block away from my house, and I just walked over there one day and said, I would like to have a job on the radio. Do you have anything available? And they put me, <laughs> they gave me an air shift in the overnights, you know, they, they trained me and got me started. Uh, I worked there for a while. I worked at several different radio stations uh, through the years. I worked at a radio station out in Arkansas. I worked... Uh, worked for one, uh, a couple others, and it wasn't until I started working for Sirius, which eventually merged with XM to become Sirius XM, that was the first time I ever played bluegrass on the air. I've done everything else. I've done, worked at a news talk station. I've played rock and roll. I'd had a gospel music show for a while, uh, you know, Southern Gospel. I did... Uh, I've done all kinds of things, and it wasn't until I worked for Sirius that I ever played bluegrass music on the air. Did you kind of feel like it had come kind of full circle at that point, the first time you got to play the music that you loved on, on the radio for the first time? You know, I didn't I, I, I didn't think it was real. <laughs> <laughs> How many people are listening? <laughs> aspects of my personality would ever, would ever have anything to do with each other. Yeah. Um, I really always thought that, you know, having any job in radio was going to be separate from, from uh, uh, bluegrass or, or, or from the music that I played. And I, the, ever since I was like 13, 14 years old, and this is, this is absolutely the truth, uh, there were only three things I ever thought that I wanted to do with my life. And that was a radio announcer, banjo player, Jedi Knight. Did you do the third one? I've got a lightsaber right, right up over here. There you go. That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you have to come out to California again. Did you, uh, you probably haven't been out here since they did the make your own uh, lightsaber thing at Disneyland. Uh, Ooh, oh, I haven't. Yeah. yeah. I'll introduce you to Nathan. He works, works here at the company. He's, uh, he's been there a couple of times, got a couple of lightsabers. You guys can meet up and, and fulfill your third dream there. That would be... Uh, that would be it, man. Jedi Knight. <laughs> one, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um... 
Due to COVID, what is the biggest thing you miss about touring? All of it. Um, Man, just all of it. You know, just playing playing music with the band, seeing people, seeing my friends, you know, uh, a lot of it is a lot of it is just the the bluegrass the bluegrass community you know is really a community of itself and there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of bands a lot of other you know a lot of friends who are musicians in these other bands that I just don't see unless we're at the same festival you know so I miss I miss uh, the guys from Special Consensus. I miss Greg Cahill. I haven't seen Greg in a while. You know, I haven't seen, uh, you know, any any of the folks that are that are out there, and the fans too. There are fans that that you you rely on. You know, you're used to seeing. They show up at your at your shows. Uh, you know, you know if you're going to this place, you're going to see these people. You know, if you're going to this yeah. place, you're going to see these people. And I miss I miss seeing them. Uh, and you know, of course, the music part of it. You know, I miss the the the, the just. You know, you you work on playing these songs, uh, and you get together and you rehearse with the band and you play them and you make them as good as you can. But then it's not they don't become real until you get on stage and you do them in front of people, and then you know you hear a reaction. You know, you see you you hear from people telling you you know what some of the songs mean to them or you know that they really enjoyed that show or something, and that's. You know, getting to the act of doing it, yeah, I miss that a lot. And it's coming. We're we're booked. The Becky Buller Band is playing the end of March. We're or the end of May. We're gonna be in. Uh, we're playing in Branson. We're at Silver Dollar City. Uh, cool. Big back after a year. Yeah, that's that's gonna be fun. That's gonna be a weird feeling, huh? But a, a good one, I hope. Getting up on. I, I hope. I am. As a matter of fact, as of today, I am 14 days past my second COVID shot. So. I am I am going out. I'm just gonna walk when we're done with this, I'm walking outside, I'm just gonna start hugging random people. Oh man. Isn't it weird? I mean it's weird. I did, uh. did that yesterday with my uh with my neighbor across the street. She moved here. She moved here a year ago as the lockdown started. Oh wow. And her experience of living in Nashville has been holed up in her sister's house. Uh, and and so she's fully vaccinated, and I am. And yesterday we were out there talking, and and I hugged her for the first first time. I've known this this woman for a year, and we've become friends. And it's like, hey, we're safe now. <laughs> was it an immediate thing, or did you feel like you had to check in to make sure it was okay? We checked in, but yeah. like, wow, <laughs> you know. And she was like, nice to meet you. And I was like, I know. <laughs> wow, wow, that's bizarre. Well, I'm glad you you got to hug someone. That's, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> okay, I got a, I got a couple of questions here, which are a bit more along the, um, should we say, technique and technical yeah. side of things, if that's okay. Do you, how are you for time? Are you good for time? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a few more and uh, see where we go. Um, so Isaac writes, I would love to know if Ned has some tips for not missing the strings and how to avoid curling in uh, the thumb, especially after numerous times of playing a role, not in the beginning of it, he says. Any so advice for the strings, not and something about the what doing what with his thumb is curling his, his curling thumb. in the thumb, especially after numerous times of playing a role. Huh, so I think, I, I think what he's ta- what he might be talking about is doing this, is kind of moving his thumb, yeah, uh, like like that. And that's I've seen I've seen people you know doing that, and and I've I've seen it become a, an annoying habit for somebody. I don't 
have a, a specific uh, I don't have a specific uh, remedy for that. I'll tell you what I've seen people do. I actually saw somebody one time. They took one of those little hair clips, like those little ones that sort of snap and snap closed, and yeah. a guy who stuck one of those under his thumb pick to hold it almost built his own brace to keep his knuckle of his thumb from from, from doing this because his thumb was just sort of you know hitting random strings with as with anything else this is one of the things that I'll try to tell uh, students to do and I'll do this in banjo camps and workshops a lot is I'll tell people to watch their their right hand or their picking hand from from a couple different angles you know sit back like this so I'm looking now across the plane of the string. So as I look, all I see is one string, you know. And then I'm watching to see how far down my picks are going uh, past the plane of the strings. So my goal is I want to pick with just like the bottom quarter of that pick, just the, just the tip of it. I don't want to be going all the way down in there. And the same thing for my thumb pick. I don't want my thumb pick to go down so far that it's smacking against the head. A lot of people, you see the evidence of it. You see the, you see the witness marks of where the pick's been smacking the head. And the only real solution of that is, is to, is slow and steady. You know, it's just practice stuff, holding your hand in one position. Keeping an eye on on how on where that goes. At some point, it's going to be slow enough that you can control it. As soon as you start to go past that point, you're going to start noticing things getting all wobbly again. Go back to that point and practice that point and slowly raise that that bar. Um, I started out paying really close attention to that. I don't know why. It was just something that was important to me. I was watching my hand a lot. One of the things I used to do. When I was at my mom and dad's house and learning how to play the banjo, they had uh, one of those sliding glass doors in the kitchen, you know, that went to the back uh, yard. And I would sit in a kitchen chair with my knees up against the glass, and I would watch my right hand in the reflection of that door. door. And not only could I see the reflection of my hand, but I could hear it really well. You know, the sound of it was bouncing back at me. And I would listen really closely to each string being even or trying to make one string, you know, so that I could go like, and then try to just do the second string or just the first string or just the fifth string, you know, and be able to control which string was getting the power at any particular time. Uh, and if you can't do that, well, spend a little time doing that, you know, and, and, the other thing I'll tell people is, and this is one that we forget, we always think when we're practicing, uh, practice the song you're working on, practice the new lick you're working on, practice the whatever the thing is, but we don't practice how we sound. You know, practice mm-hmm. one, at least one time a week when you're practicing. Practice for tone. Practice for getting a clean sound out of everything. Make sure that uh, that every note is evenly spaced. Make sure each note sounds good. Make sure every all your pull-offs sound nice. You know, make sure your slides you don't lift your fingers up too quick. You know, practice thinking about sound. And there was another quote that I read. I think this was in a book that Bill Keith wrote. He said, when you're practicing just one lick, you know, like if you're just going to practice that, he said, pretend that is one piece of music. That's the world's shortest song. It's just that. Make it sound beautiful on its own, you know. 
give it all the all the attention at, that a, a full piece of music deserves. And then when you learn the next thing, you know, make sure that this one, give it everything. Make every note of it count. Every note is just as important as every other one. And extrapolate from there. I can't ask much more than that, really. That's very cool. Uh, we're going to wrap up with one more. Um, just one other question that came up because it was being discussed a little bit in the in the chat room. Do you have an opinion on uh, what is it easier to learn, the banjo or the guitar? Oh, the banjo. See? Easy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I'll just I'll run this by you real quick. This was a lesson that my friend Steve Cunningham at Baltimore Bluegrass, where me and Mike used to work, he used to give this lesson on, we uh, called it the five-minute banjo lesson, where he, and I'm going to condense it, make it a little bit shorter here, but the, the whole point to it was, he said, play a melody, and he did Yankee Doodle. So you're going to play all the melody on just the third and fourth string. spaces by playing the fifth string. Now, between every note, play just the first string. Class, alternate between your index and middle fingers. So you're going thumb one, thumb two, thumb one, thumb two. And then give it the Kruger wiggle. <laughs> you got you gotta have the Kruger wiggle. That's gee, I love that. That's that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing. The Kruger wiggle, man. <laughs> Get the Kruger wiggle. God bless him. <laughs> All right. Led, thank you so much. That was that was fantastic. That's, yeah, this has been That's fun. Welcome. Yeah, that was good. Any uh, any final thoughts you want to share? Are you uh, or you want to play us out some? Uh, the other final thought is just remember uh, everything, whatever it is, I don't care if you're playing the Wedding March or the Kentucky Waltz, you can end any song with... <laughs> <laughs> haircut will stop a train <laughs> <laughs> okay here's the challenge you go play something and end on that Thank you.